bumper video that they made. And I love it because I love true crime podcasts. We're going to talk about those in a second. But let me just say, there's been an explosion in podcasts over the last few years. Uh, podcasts have been around since 2004. I don't know, maybe you've been listening since then. Maybe for you, it's just the last 10 years or so. Maybe you've never listened to a podcast. But it, but it seems since 2020 and really the beginning of the pandemic, podcasts like exploded. Everyone stuck at home started a podcast. Uh, there's podcasts for cooking, and there's podcasts that cover politics, and there's podcasts that cover your favorite sports teams, and, and there's even a podcast where two ladies from The Office sit and watch episodes from The Office that they acted in, and then they talk about The Office. But I think one of my favorite genres of podcast is true crime. As of last year, there were over 200 true crime podcasts on the Apple Podcast app. And if you've never listened to a true crime podcast, the best ones involve a reporter telling the story of a real crime that happened, usually sometime in the last 100 years or so. Sometimes a crime there's great controversy over. And it usually involves a reporter doing some detective work to see if they can uncover something about the crime that nobody else has noticed yet. Uh, really, most of the time it involves a reporter and then you, the listener, trying to solve a mystery over a number of episodes. And this morning, we begin a series leading up to Easter where we are going to try and solve a mystery together of a crime that occurred 2,000 years ago. We're going to spend the next four weeks trying to figure out what happened when Jesus was killed on the cross. Now, as I say that, you might think, what's the mystery? We have four Gospels. They all give an account. They give eyewitness accounts, really, of what happened that day on the cross, even what happened the day before in the hours leading up to it. We have direct quotes. We have vivid imagery. We, we know who were hanging on the crosses next to Jesus. We know who did it. We know who watched it. We know who betrayed him. Some of you even know exactly where it happened. It, it happened, by the way, on a hill called Golgotha, which is Aramaic for skull. Uh, it is very likely that Jesus' death on the cross happened on a skull, uh, a hill made of rock, a hill that looked like a skull. There are all sorts of details we know about the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. But the mystery that we want to look at with you this series is why it had to happen and why 2,000 years later we're still talking about it and whether or not the cross has lost its meaning. As we jump in, I want to ask you to watch one more thing. Would you take a look at this? We have all seen it. Some of you may be wearing one right now. It is the most recognized religious symbol in the world. It sits on top of churches. Some wear it as jewelry or on their clothing. Some may hang it on their bedroom wall or perhaps their rearview mirror, while rock stars and athletes have it tattooed on their bodies. Why do you think that is? What does it really mean? What does it stand for? Is it more than a fashion statement? Is it more than a cool piece of artwork? Does it give you good luck or provide a sense of protection? Is there a message within this simple symbol? Is there a message that still calls out to us today? Do you understand? Many don't understand the message of the cross. They've misused it to push their own agenda and in turn make it something it was never intended to say. Some look at the cross and feel a sense of guilt, shame, or regret. They see hate, blame, or rejection. They fault the cross for wars, catastrophes, and division. But that's 
not what the cross says. The cross shouts love. The cross roars freedom. The cross not only illustrates grace, but it demonstrates forgiveness. The cross brings salvation, for it births a new beginning. The cross declares victory and exchanges death for eternal life. For you and you and you, for everyone, everywhere who believes. Because cross equals love. I love a question that the narrator asked in that video. Is there a message within the simple symbol? Is there a message that calls out to us? And, and that video almost preached my sermon for me. It said the message is freedom and the message is forgiveness and the message is salvation and the message is a new beginning. And, and then it said at the end, the message is love. The cross equals love. But those are all just words if we don't understand why the cross means any of those things. And the mystery, the mystery at Skull Rock is about a few very important messages that God was trying to send to you. Um, I was thinking about this. I became a Christian at the age of 10. I grew up in church, but I made a decision to follow Jesus when I was 10. And we had a big cross up on the wall at the front of our church sanctuary. That's what we called that room, the sanctuary. That's actually it right there. In fact, last year, uh, the first day of my sabbatical, I went and I sat in that church outside Chicago and I looked at the cross that was on the wall and I prayed and I journaled and I took this picture. Uh, and then I took a picture of these in the backs of the pews. And I, I sent this to my brother. These are communion cup holders. Uh, see, in my church, we had glass cups for the juice. And when you were done taking communion, you would put them in these little holes in the pews that had these brown rubber inserts so that the glass cups wouldn't break. Uh, except you will notice that one is missing. Uh, it is missing because my brother and I would get fidgety in church and we would take those rubber inserts out and we'd start playing with them and inevitably drop it and then it would roll to the back and we couldn't find it and we wouldn't put it back. Uh, it has been 35 years since I was a kid in that church. Either it's still missing from 35 years ago or kids are doing the exact same thing that I did back then. Uh, anyway, I became a Christian when I was 10 and here is what I knew about the cross. Here's what I knew. That Jesus went to the cross to die for my sins so that I wouldn't go to hell. And I'm not saying that the church taught me this next part, but here's, here's what I did. I thought, all right, well, the rest of my life will be about proving that I was worth it. If he was willing to die for me, then I better be good enough that Jesus didn't waste his death. Even as I say that right now, it kind of sounds not too bad, right? Hey, that's probably a great motivator for a kid. Jesus died for you, make him proud. And, and maybe it was, I don't know, I think I was a good kid. Uh, but the problem is even good kids aren't always good. And when I did do something wrong and I would look at this cross, I would feel incredible shame. I would feel incredible guilt. And I remember a couple of the youth pastors even saying things like, Chris, every sin you commit is hammering another nail in Jesus' arms on that cross. I said, I wonder how many of you, the cross is a symbol of God's love, but it's also a symbol of your shame. That's a message that you somehow received in all of that. 
Or I wonder, I wonder if it's something else. Maybe for you, the cross has been a symbol of a call to deep sacrifice. I was talking to someone two weeks ago. They told me this. They look at the cross, and it reminds them that Jesus said, you are to take up your own cross. I mean, Jesus was tortured on a cross, and you see one, and you think, that is what God is expecting for me to do with my life. There are a lot of meanings we've taken away from the cross, as you saw in the video. And the mystery, the mystery at Skull Rock is what are the messages that God intended to send to you today? There's a lot of messages out there about the cross. What are the ones that he intended to send? And this week, in the next three leading up to Easter, we're going to help you understand four different messages he's sending. And all four of them speak to some not-so-great things that are going on in us today that I don't know that we know the cross was all about fixing. The cross was about fighting these things for you. I cannot wait to walk you through these. And And the first thing this cross fixed is the shame that I was talking to you about earlier. Um, when our daughter Kennedy was one year old, she was testing all sorts of boundaries around our house. Like, like, like one of the, the, the rules was she was not allowed to crawl into the fireplace. We thought that was a pretty good rule. And so uh, we made it very clear when she would start to with very loud no's. You do that as parents, no. You know, you got that voice. And, uh, and she got it that the, the fireplace was off limits. But every once in a while, uh, she would think we were not looking. And she would casually crawl around over into the fireplace area as if she was just checking out the area around the fireplace. And, and then lightning quick, she would make her move in. Dude, I should say, don't worry, the fire was not on. It was empty. I, I should have said that to begin with. Uh, we were not doing a Hansel and Gretel thing or anything. And so uh, we would run over and we would get her out. We'd pull her out. And every time we did, she would have this look on her face where she knew that she did something wrong. She just knew it. And usually that would be followed by this emotional reaction, usually crying, this reaction of, whoops, you caught me. And I, I don't know what to do to make it right, parents. That is shame. When you know you've done something wrong and you don't know what to do to fix it. How do I fix it as a pastor? Can I tell you, I have talked to many people who don't know Jesus and and even more who do, who still don't know what to do about their shame problem. Maybe that's you. Now, the first time we see shame in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden. Actually, it's the first time that we see sin, right? Sin and shame go together. Um, Let me just say, I know that word sin is a loaded word. What it simply means is disobeying God. In our modern world, that, that word tends to get a bit of a negative reaction. Nobody really likes to talk about it. And so we, including me, we tend to use other words in our everyday conversation to convey the same meaning. We'll talk about our shortcomings, or we'll talk about our mistakes, or how we're not so perfect. Uh, we, might even, we, we might even say our rebellion, which does get a little bit closer. And all of those are true words and concepts that explain part of what sin is, but, but the truth is it is so much more than that. Um, It's a verb, I sinned. It's a noun, uh, stealing something is a sin, but it is also, it's a state of being. Um, Sometimes when I talk about sin, I like to use the analogy of paint. You've probably heard me do that before if you've been around here a while. Uh, Let me explain. If you are painting a wall and you're being very careful trying to paint this wall and you have no intention of getting the paint on you as you paint, somehow it still gets on you. Have you noticed that? 
No matter how careful you are when you paint, that's kind of how it is with sin. I may not be sinning right now, but my nature, by nature, I am sinful. What I mean is I did some at some point, and it is on me no matter how careful I am. And, and like paint, it doesn't come off easy. Um, have you ever painted something and it got messy? And when you were done, you went to the sink to wash your hand and you sat there for 10 minutes scrubbing your hands, but it is in your cuticles and it's under your nails and it's somehow on this back part of your arm that you can't figure out how it got there and you couldn't see it. Part of why sin leads to shame is I can't get rid of it all. That's part of why I feel shame about it. There's always some left over, even no matter how much I try to get it off. Well, the first time that we see sin and shame is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Uh, we, we, we see God tell Adam and Eve, don't eat off of, of this tree. If you do, it's sin, disobedience to God. And you know the story, they do it anyway. And it causes them so much shame, right? Uh, Genesis 3, 7, take a look at this. It says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. I just want to make sure that you get that. The very first sin we read about in history, the very first reaction is shame. What does shame do? It causes them to cover up from each other, to wear a mask. I don't want you to see the real me. I don't like who I am. I don't like the way that I look in front of you. And in this moment, it causes them to want to hide from each other. That's what shame does. And, and take a look at this, uh, uh, verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. The shame causes them to want to hide from God, to separate from God. Sin leads to shame, and then shame leads to separation. Now, real quick. Many of you have heard an idea about separation from God. You, you've heard that there is a, a chasm between us as sinners and a holy, perfect God. And because of our sin, there is no way we could be anywhere near a holy, perfect God. And that the cross is about Jesus being a bridge over that chasm. And the cross takes away the separation. And I think that is a really good metaphor. The bridge, the chasm, I've taught it even recently. But what I want you to see that is not what happens in the garden here. In the garden, what separates people from God is not that they sin and a perfect holy God can't be near them. What's separating them in the garden is their own shame. Their sin, their shame caused them to run and hide. They choose to separate from God. And actually, in the garden, a holy, perfect God draws near to the sinners that he loves, right? And he asks why they have separated. Why have you hidden from me? They run and hide. Maybe if we get behind these bushes, no one will know. And ever since that time, people have been doing things to try and keep our sin and our shame hidden. We hide it. We deny that it exists, hoping that'll make the shame go away if we just ignore it. We medicate it. We fill our mind with other things to distract ourselves from it. And many of us, many of us, we work very hard to do enough good things to outshine it. But the truth is, none of those seem to work. Hiding shame doesn't seem to make it go away, and ignoring it doesn't make it go away. And doing a lot of good to show how clean you are does not get the paint off your hands. 
those methods do not work with Adam and Eve, and they do not work now. And so God, in that moment, came up with a way to deal with their sin and their shame. He sacrificed something. Now, even if it's been a long time since you read the first few chapters of the Bible, you might remember. Or here, if you've never read it, you might know this part of the story. God kills these animals, and he uses their skin, their fur, as clothes for Adam and Eve in their nakedness so that they won't feel this shame anymore. And in Genesis 3, along with the first sin and the, the first shame and separation because of shame, we see the first sacrifice. Actually, we see the first death. Death enters the world for the first time because of sin and shame. It takes blood being shed for the wrongs that these people feel so guilty about to be made right. Now, that sounds incredibly gruesome, and it is, and there is no way around it. I wish that I could tell you in 21st century America where we do not sacrifice animals. That is not how they did it back then. I wish that I could say that to you, but this is an ancient culture we're reading about thousands of years ago, and that's how they did things back then. Um, by the way, that's how the cultures around them did things too. What I will tell you, if it bothers you, good, it should because an innocent thing lost its life. It became a substitute for Adam and Eve. See, see, God had told them before they took the apple, if you eat fruit from this one tree, you will die. But instead, in his great mercy, God came up with another way. Instead of you dying, what will die is this innocent animal. And you can know that something else has suffered the consequences of your wrong. Amends have been made. You've been made right, and you can live life with me without the burden of shame keeping you hiding. And so blood is shed, and their wrongs are made right through a substitute. Take a look. First sin, first shame, first separation, and then first sacrifice or death or substitute. And then what? The first clear conscience, where some people feel good about their relationship to God again. But of course, you know what I know, that the story of sin and shame doesn't end there because Adam and Eve were not the only ones who ever did anything wrong. And as history moves forward, there are a lot more than two people, and there are a lot of people with a lot of pain on their hands that they cannot seem to get off. And, and here is what's most important. It doesn't take long before this clear conscience gets paint on it again. Do, do you know what comes after a clear conscience? More sin. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons, they sin, and then the people after them sin, and then the people after that. All throughout the Old Testament, person after person steps into sin, which of course leads to shame, which leads to separation from God and hiding. And as God continues to see this happen again and again with humans, God sets up a plan for people to have their sin and their shame taken away. And they end up calling this plan the Day of Atonement. Now, let me give you some details of this. And I know they may not sound terribly important, but, but you'll see in just a minute why they matter to help us solve this mystery of what God was wanting us to know through the cross. God sees that people keep sinning and that they keep feeling shame and they keep feeling guilt over it. And he designs a system through a holiday, a way they can regularly get the paint off themselves every year. 
uh, in the book of Leviticus, he lays out in detail this yearly ceremony that their high priest is supposed to go through, be every year in August, the priest would enter into the most holy place at the temple in Jerusalem, and among other things that would happen, he would place his hands on the head of a goat, symbolically transferring all the sins of the people from that previous year onto the goat. And the concept was, again, everyone has sinned, some of us big, some of us small. You can't get it off yourself. You feel shame about it. Let's transfer our sins onto the goat, and it will take the fall for us. Um, by the way, this goat is where we came up with the term we use today. You know what it is? Anybody? Scapegoat. Somebody who takes the fall for someone else, a substitute. And what would happen every year? The scapegoat was taken out into the wilderness to die. They would banish the goat with their sins far away from any civilization. And, and get this, they would actually leave somebody out there to make sure that the goat with their sins didn't wander its way back into town. And when it was done, the priest would come before the people and he would say, it is finished. The substitution has been made. The scapegoat has been banished. Again, sin, shame, separation, or sacrifice, substitute, and then clear conscience with God. You are good with God again because we substituted something for you. And so this is the way that it went with God and his people. Year after year, every year, every sin, big and little, the sin they couldn't stop thinking about, the sin they didn't even remember, the one they didn't even know was sin to begin with. All their guilt, all their shame poured onto this goat and he takes it far away and they feel good. But let me ask you a question. How long do you imagine somebody would feel good for? Maybe the better question is, how long until they would do something again that would make them feel shame and guilt again? The next day? Maybe you're better than me. The next week, the next month, it doesn't take very long for people to sin again. No matter how careful you are, it is hard to paint without getting it on you. And so it doesn't take very long for the guilt and the shame to come back. And so they would wait a whole nother year for the next holiday with the scapegoat in August. The day they would come back and get a break from the guilt, they would escape and they would be washed clean from it again. All right, let me tell you what started to happen. People became calloused to the sacrifice. It's as if they knew that it, the sacrifice would be made, and so they took that as a license to sin. Some would actually try to get their sin in before the day of the scapegoat. Uh, if I'm going to cheat on my wife, this is the week to do it because the scapegoat is next week, and I'm only going to have to live with the shame or with the sin for a couple of days. If I did it the day after, I'd have to wait 364 days to make the shame go away. People would dive deep into their sin and their shame and their separation, knowing they only had to carry it out until the next sacrifice. Now, just real quick time out. I, I wonder if some of us today do this. We, we, we tend to think of ourselves as people who look at uh, other people who walk around acting like they don't have sin, and we think of them as hypocrites, and we, we look at those folks and we think, who do you think you're fooling? I would rather give in and smear this paint all over my hands than walk around pretending to be sin-free. Um, I've shared with you before that I used to pastor in Las Vegas, right? And uh, that is a town that was built around that attitude about sin. 
Nobody denied it was full of sin, that a lot of people would go there for the purpose of sinning. It was literally on our tourism brochures, you guys. Its nickname is Sin City, right? And what I loved about Las Vegas, no one tried to justify sin or explain it away or, or call it something else or pretend it was something else. It was just unabashed, unabashed brazen, blatant, in-your-face sin. And I think that the thought was and is Hey, we know that the sin stuff we're about to do is wrong, and we know it's even destructive, like it's got the potential to destroy your health and your marriage and your nest egg and your relationships, but we also know we're going to do it anyway, so let's at least do it someplace where it's legal. And by the way, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which of course we know from painting isn't true, because when you paint, when you sin, it gets on you, and it goes where you go. Um, have any of you ever been to Vegas? One of the things I've noticed when you're flying into Las Vegas, on the way there, it is the greatest, most exciting plane ride ever. Lots of fun. Everybody's going to a party. On the way back, the most somber, melancholy plane ride you will ever take. Lots of shame, I guess, on that flight. And, and of course, separation, right? It's to say, this is not an ancient world pattern, this idea of, oh, I'll sin and then, you know, it'll work itself out. I'll, I'll get over it over time. We do this cycle. It becomes a vicious cycle in our lives. Sin, shame, separate. And some of us here, some of us even think we fix it by sacrificing something in our own lives to solve the problem. If I give God enough money, that's my form of sacrifice, my time or my good deeds, then I can have a clear conscience and I'll be made right with God again. H have you noticed? Have you noticed that it doesn't work? Your shame might feel like it's fixed, but then it comes back later. It keeps coming up. Well, God noticed this about us. And God decided to come up with a solution for our sin and for our shame once and for all. One final substitute, one final sacrifice, and it's got to be one that'll last longer than a day, work longer than a year. If there's going to be a new substitute, it would have to be Jesus. And like all of those other years with the goats where they would find an innocent, blameless animal, flawless, to take away everybody's shame and guilt, God sends a man, innocent, flawless, blameless his son to die on the cross and take on the sins of the world to sub in for you and the sin and the shame that keeps wanting to come up in your life. Let's talk about that. Almost every painting you will see of Jesus dying on the cross has him in some kind of clothes, usually a loincloth at least, but we read in the Bible that the soldiers stripped him of his clothes. That was normal practice for people who were being killed by crucifixion. They would hang naked on the cross. You know why? Because the goal of the cross was to shame them. And as we saw a few moments ago with Adam and Eve, nakedness in their culture was the ultimate shame. To be hung naked publicly, to be tortured, prolonged pain inflicted. There were faster ways to kill someone. The cross was about making someone feel shame. He was ridiculed, and he was mocked, and he was ignored and abandoned by his friends. All of that was about Jesus, who did not deserve shame, experiencing shame and choosing to be the substitute on your behalf. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, 
scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Scorning the shame. That means he despised the shame that he experienced, but even more, he despised the shame that you and I and all of humanity have been living with our whole lives. And on the cross, Jesus took our sin and our shame and just like the scapegoat, he essentially walked into the wilderness left alone to die so that you and I could be made right, so that we could be good with God again. And you need to know, this was a death that wouldn't have to be repeated every year over and over. A death that offered grace, where people who were willing to give Jesus their sin, put it on his head, would be able to live without shame for the rest of their lives. And when that time on the cross was almost over, just like with the scapegoat in all of those years leading up, the high priest, Jesus, announced, it is finished. You are free. We're asking the question this series, what is the meaning of the cross? What is the message that God has for you today in the cross? And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, he himself bore our sins, our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You have been healed of your shame and your separation from God because he made himself a substitute and bore your sins. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, a substitute. Righteousness means because of Jesus' sacrifice, you have been made right with the God that you think you need to hide from. And one of the messages that God has for you is Jesus was a substitute for you. And one of the mysteries, the mystery of why Jesus would do that it's not really a mystery, is it? Someone had to write those wrongs. It was supposed to be me. It was supposed to be you. From the beginning of time, the deal with God was we would be responsible for our own actions. Any sin we did wrong, it would be our job to fix it. But Jesus, loving you and me, chose to be the sacrifice once and for all, forever. And crosswinds, when you look at a cross, one of the things that you are supposed to remember, and we've got three more, we're gonna hit these other three in the next three weeks, but one of the things you're supposed to remember and feel is not shame, it is love, because Jesus felt the shame for you. You are supposed to remember the amazing love that would take your shame and sin and sub in for you. In just a moment, we're going to remember that through communion. Every week of this series, we're going to be taking communion together every week. And our hope isn't just to deepen your understanding of the cross, but your experience of the cross. And I'll explain more in a second how we're going to do that. But before we do, it has occurred to me this morning, there are some of you who might be hearing for the first time that Jesus was a substitute for your sin and your shame or you might be understanding it for the first time, or you might be feeling prompted to do something with it. Maybe it has hit you today. Jesus loved me so much, he would take all of my sins on his head. He would be a scapegoat for me. And maybe today, 
you feel led to respond to his sacrifice for you, to invite him to apply what he did on the cross to your life and to become your rescuer and your leader. And before we take communion, if that's you, I just, I want to lead you in a prayer that you can pray with me to ask Jesus to be that in your life, to let his sacrifice count apply to you. Uh, Can I tell you, this is the most important decision you will ever make. Who are you trusting to set things right between you and God, to deal with your shame and your sin, to save you, you or Jesus? You can decide that right now. Um, Let's pray. I'm going to just ask everybody in here to bow their heads with me. Would you do that? And and, and while our heads are bowed, we go before God. Here's what I want to do. Um, If you have never made the choice to have Jesus make things right with you and God, I want to give you a chance to do that right now in this prayer. I'm going to pray, and what you can do is just repeat the words I pray to God right after me, and you can own them as yours, pray them to God, And, and, and this is something we don't do here a lot, but I want to ask everybody here who's even already made the decision to follow Jesus. Um, I want to ask you to pray this prayer out loud with us because sometimes there is safety in being one voice in agreement with the others. So I'm going to pray, and I'll just ask if you can be in agreement with this prayer and make it yours to pray out loud by repeating what I say. Let's do this. Heavenly Father, I confess today that I am a sinner. And I understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking my place. And I would like to receive your forgiveness and your grace. It's a gift because of what Jesus has done for me. I invite Jesus to be my forgiver. and leader and my friend and companion through life. And it is as easy as that to make the right choice. But but while you're still praying with your heads down, I, I think there are probably quite a few people here who you know, God, you've been following Jesus, but you are still feeling, you are still carrying around this burden of guilt and shame, and you need to know today, the final substitute worked. You are forgiven. You are cleansed, and you are whole, and you are healed, and you are loved, and you don't need to carry it around anymore. Jesus' death was enough to save you. There does not need to be anything else from you. And so, God, I pray for this church family that they would know that your love doesn't fail and your sacrifice counts for them too and that it lasts forever and that there is nothing, no sin so big, no sin so bad that the cross wouldn't cover it. And God, I ask those that have been fooled into thinking that their guilt needs to stay can know once and for all It is finished. Your son has taken it all. 
and all God's people said, amen. If you just made that decision, if you just prayed a prayer like that for the first time, I, I, I want to encourage you to let us know that. We would love to help you understand what it is to live into God's grace. And in just a moment, when we go to the communion tables, you're going to see some cards there that have some QR codes on them. And if you grab one, take it home with you. When you get home, you can scan it. And, and, and the link you'll see, um, you can sign up for an email that'll walk you through what this life of, of grace and love in Jesus is all about. All right. Derek is going to lead us in a song. We have six communion tables around the room, two up here, uh, two on the, on the floor in the back there, and then two halfway up in the alcoves in the stadium seating. And we have bread at those tables and we have juice, and we're not gonna dismiss you by rows or anything like that. We're gonna just sing. And as you are feeling ready, and, and let me say, sometimes that takes time to feel ready. As you feel ready to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made as your substitute, as you are feeling ready, when you feel ready, would you go to the table and just take the elements right there at the table? You don't have to bring them back to your seat. The bread representing the body of Christ broken for you. The juice representing the blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus said, when you eat and drink these things, remember me. Remember the moment that I loved you enough to take your sin and your shame on me and take your place. Today as we take communion, maybe remember differently than you normally do based on what God has brought to light for you in our time together. All right? Derek, will you lead us in crosswinds as you're ready? joy 
time together by singing. You guys are already standing, so let's sing one more song. Is that all right with you? All right, here we go.
Have a good one.